Hey, Adam, can we start with a quick mic check? Right now? Can you give me like a ha sound, like maybe a laugh? <laughs> okay, we're good to go. Hi there, this is Adam Levin, not Adam Levine from Maroon 5, and this is All Strings Considered. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. Before I introduce you to my good friend Adam Levin, along with all his really killer projects over the last few years, I do have a wee holiday gift for you. My excellent 7th grade guitar class requested Carol of the Bells for this season, and so I put together some simple duet, trio, and quartet versions of the piece, which I thought I would offer to you. So, if you're looking for a last-minute piece to bring to your students, or just want something fun to sight-read around the dinner table with some of your guitar peeps, uh, just go to my website, scottwolfguitar.com store, for a free PDF. Also, speaking of gifts, the folks over at Deoro Music sent me a couple of their ergonomic guitar supports for both my flamenco and classical guitars, and they're really great. They have a softer leather strap where the support contacts with your leg. And to me, they just feel way more grounded and solid than a lot of the competing rigid frame supports that are out there. So go check them out. They're great. Deoromusic.com. So it's D-E-O-R-O-M-U-S-I-C.com. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. And by audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So Adam and I met while we were both studying with Elliot Fisk at New England Conservatory in Boston. After completing my degree there, I had loaded up my car with all my stuff, and Adam and his family were kind enough to allow me a pit stop in Chicago at their home there before continuing my trek all the way back to California. I had a great time in Chicago, and his family was awesome. It was great. So, I finally got to return that favor just a few weeks ago when Adam came through LA on his tour. We had a great time. We discovered Adam's obsession for brushing his teeth, morning, night, after meals, before concerts, and seemingly endless other reasons. The moments before you go up on stage are kind (laughs) of strange. You don't know where you are. You're... It just... There's a lot of adrenaline... You might be sweating a little bit. You might be, th- you know, your, your mind's drifting. Who knows? Or you're focused. Who knows? It, it, it varies. But I always find what centers me is brushing your teeth. It sort of freshens everything up. It puts a smile on your face. Or my face, at least. <laughs> hopefully it puts a smile on your face, too. Yeah. Well, more likely than not, right? <laughs> but Adam's not just here so I can poke fun at him. He's mainly here because he's really good at the guitar. And on top of that, he just came back after living in Spain for several years where he commissioned a whopping 30 new works by 21st century Spanish composers, culminating in a four-CD series on the Naxos label, about half of which is already recorded. We'll also be talking and hearing about Adam's chamber music projects, his ideas on interpretation, and lots more. So, let's start where we always do, at the beginning. So... Guitar? I mean, did you start right with guitar? Was it classical guitar you started Yeah, you know, I sort of just like woke up one day and my dad handed me a classical guitar. And everybody's like, oh, you didn't start with rock or jazz or, or bluegrass? And no, it was just classical. Yeah, so anyway, I, I started when I was seven. Yeah, so my dad's been playing guitar since he was a kid. Um, he was playing, he started with violin. And uh, then when the Beatles came out, he threw away his violin and uh, start playing uh, guitar. He would have started with electric guitar. Though. Yeah, oh, he definitely started with electric guitar. He mm. um, he was listening to like Clapton, Hendrix, you know, obviously the Beatles were a big influence. Did he transition somehow and then, or did he just, he was like, all right, I play, I play rock, but my kid's gonna play classical? I think when it was time to teach his kids, I think he just wanted, because he, he loved Segovia. I mean, he had a lot of the Segovia records, mm. but I think that there is also that intrigue with uh, electric guitar and, you know, that sort of rock star status. And so, you know, yeah. uh, I think it was just, I think there's something more formal about classical guitar and he wanted to give me like the sort of technical foundation. Yeah. So yeah, when I was seven, I just sort of woke up, he handed me a guitar and it was like, it's time to get up at five in the morning and practice, son. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what it was? Did yeah. he, was he your first teacher? Uh, yeah. He, I mean, he, 
he was super involved with you know my musical upbringing and uh, mm. but I did have teachers like throughout I feel really fortunate I had this um my first teacher was this Japanese teacher Shinobu Sato actually I just within the last year I uh, wrote him and we've been in touch you know talking about my career and his and so forth and yeah he was my first teacher he was fantastic and I remember the one thing that he really gave me was just like a really broad spectrum of repertoire yeah repertoire I, we just uh. went through so much repertoire so mm. it really helped my sight reading and uh, technique and then high school uh, I worked with Mark Maxwell and Ann Waller they're based out of Chicago and but my dad was he was sort of my mentor at home and he sort mm-hmm. of uh, kept you going. Kept, kept me going. He, yeah, he was the engine behind my practicing. I have vivid memories. So it was really five in the morning, like a couple yeah, hours yeah. No, a day. I mean, because so my mom, uh, seven she, years old, you're yeah. practicing. No, it wasn't. It was when I was younger. It was. I think I probably practice after school but it was right around like sixth or eighth grade I remember getting up around 6 30 and then when I moved into high school it was five o'clock because then I, I would in order to uh, take myself to school to have to drive my mom uh. to uh, the train station so I could have the car so I would take her at 5 15 then come home sit down practice and I mean, cool I remember, way to start the day. I remember times where I would like run down the hallway before my dad had the opportunity to come down to my room to wake me up. And I'd be like, please, dad, can I just sleep in today? I promise I'll practice after school. And he'd be like, no, listen, you've got homework. You've got karate. Yes, I did karate. <laughs> <laughs> That's what every good Jewish boy does. Karate? <laughs> karate, yeah. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like a good stereotype. It's a new one for me. Yeah. Yeah, so he, you know, it was great. I mean, there's not many kids that age, like, have the experience of getting up that early and experiencing that part of the morning. And mm. as miserable as it was sometimes, it was also incredible. The amount of, like, attention you have that early. Mm. I mean, you're just, like, so focused. Yeah. And there's nothing to bother you. I mean, you hear the birds chirping, and that's it. You see the sunrise every day. And uh, it was it was really special. You know, I, I definitely have to thank my dad for that. And him being a collector, was it a kick-ass first guitar it, for a kid to have? Like I said, he's had interest in guitars his entire life. At first, he's been sort of picking up acoustic guitars. And then when we started on classical, my sister and I, he started getting more into classical. So he started finding classical guitars, uh, vintage classical guitars that he mm. liked. So that was really cool. Mm. I guess I was really fortunate to play on some of like, the best instruments you know, growing up. And I remember, and still do, I love the instruments of uh, Richard Brunet because he's, mm. you know, he's definitely the... Uh, the rock star builder in the Midwest and hmm. and across the country in terms of like the traditional build. He's got just such a, like a sweet sound and just there's a clarity that's just like unmatched. And then his knowledge, his breadth of knowledge in the classical guitar, uh, Spain, the All whole the industry. Techniques yeah, and- it's just unbelievable. You can literally just sit there and you're just in awe at like how much he knows. I have many of his guitars and I, I love them. I mean, they're yeah. within the the traditional world of building. He's you know he's unmatched. I think. Yeah. And then you have a modern guitar now. Yeah. So now, I mean, then as I went from Northwestern to New England Conservatory to study with Elliot, he discovered this builder Steve Connor, and you know, yeah, yeah pretty well and. He sort of just flourished. It's like he had his IPO. And it just like he just has done so well in the last like 15 years. Yeah. Well, I think because Elliot's playing on his guitar mm-hmm. too. And is is uh, Angel Romero too? Yeah, Angel Romero, the Assads. Just there's a and lot this of... this one sounds So I, 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 My first Conor guitar I had was in 2005. And I mm-hmm. remember that was like right around when Elliot, I think maybe 2003 Elliot got his first one. Mm-hmm. And then I, I heard it and I was like, holy cow. So I got one of his instruments and it was just a beast. Yeah, it was just like this monster of a guitar it's just it's like an instrument you would find in the wilderness you're like whoa what is this and it just like envelops you it's like this this you find that in the wild yeah yeah i guess so yeah (laughs) that's weird there's a guitar just built and ready to go and it's a monster yeah why does it have arms I've had a bunch of Connors over the years. And, and, and this is not a double top. This is a traditional top, but the sound port and the raised neck. and Yeah, so S- Steve Connor, he, he always tells the story that one, one night he was drinking tequila and experimented on one of his uh, traditional guitars, cracked open the side and cut one of these sound portals and was like mesmerized by the effect it had mm. on the volume. So he started adding that to his his build and it's it's part it's just sort of become a trademark of his instruments and in over time he's also developed the lattice bracing it's something very personal i mean he's constantly evolving i think that's what's 
sort of his the cachet of instruments is that he's constantly evolving, getting better, trying to push the the benchmark, the limit. It's a tease because you're like, I just got my instrument, I love it, and he's like, Oh, I'm I'm you know experimenting with this new model, and I'm like, What? I thought you were experimenting with mine. Mine should be the best. You know? <laughs> Why aren't you sticking with yeah, that? Stick with that. That's the best one. So anyway, I got this one last year, 2013. I wanted a spruce guitar with an elevated fingerboard and, and Brazilian rosewood. He always just built sweet guitars for me. I mean. Each time he's built me a guitar, he always just pushes the limit with it. And I'm always just like completely humbled by how amazing his instruments are. And they have that traditional clarity, but that beastliness, like that, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that range, you know, you got those, those crystal clear trebles in, in that beastly bass, <laughs> <laughs> that monstrous bass. And, you know, I, I found, I think, a good balance with him. And that's what you're playing on yeah, right that's now. That's what I'm playing. I'm living in, in Boston now, teaching mm. at uh, University of Massachusetts, Boston. I'm also teaching at Middlesex College, and that's been really cool for me, you know, getting my feet wet in the in academia and learning that world and mm -hmm. getting to teach the young generation. The smaller college, uh, Middlesex, I'm, I've got two group classes, which is which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But you also, at the same time, you I definitely feel like a gymnast dancing and prancing around, trying to balance the whole class, keeping everybody on, this, on the same page and, yeah. you know, you never know what the the level of the class is going to be you know there might be one person who's has a substantially good level and then others who just don't have any experience so what's your strategy what do you do or do you just kind of play it by the by moment, moment, uh, to moment? I, I put my military suit on and i just i uh, say you are yeah. better than everybody else stop playing and wait <laughs> yeah yeah you come back <laughs> next semester buddy yeah. <laughs> no i i just i i try to give I do that. Yeah. I go, you know what? You're ahead. You need to wait. You yeah. know, like you might have a little bit of experience, but you know, it hurts the rest of the class for you to be kind of showing off yeah. and doing this stuff and not keeping up. Yeah. I mean, you can, a lot of students can also, you know, work by example. They see mm -hmm. like, you know, people with higher levels. So it inspires it kinda them. It helps yeah. the whole class if that yeah. person's willing to kind of. Yeah. So it is a challenge, but um, I, I sort of have my, my, my plan of action with heavy emphasis. I'm being able to read in the first position and do things independently by yourself. And uh -huh. reading music, no tablature. I don't deal with any of that. Yeah. Any of that, you know. I, I just I want people to leave. If it's one semester, I want them to leave with the basic knowledge of how to read a piece of music yeah. and, and play it on the guitar. Yeah. Nothing complex, but just be self-sufficient. Yeah. Well, the whole tab thing is like you're you're getting stuck with somebody who maybe doesn't know the best way to play something yeah. and you're stuck with their fingerings. Yeah. Right? There's nothing you can do because you're just looking at a bunch of numbers and mm -hmm. it's like that's where I put my hand, but maybe that's not the best place yeah. to put your hand. And you're you not know? even give, you're not giving the rhythm. It's very limited. I have to say, I'll give credit where it's due. It does develop the ear. So you're listening to um, a track and yeah. you're like, oh, "I got to I got to uh, match that up with what I see on the tablature." So that mm -hmm. in that in that way uh, a lot of my students have, you know, really have developed their ear more than their uh, reading skills. And that's a good thing, except that if you're always listening to the same mm -hmm. recording, I mean, we just, Adam Holtzman actually mentioned, you know, he was saying, it's a great idea to listen to, to other people play the piece you're working on, Yeah. but listen to a bunch of different people. Yeah. And the problem with like the tab thing is they pick one guy who's playing it mm -hmm. and they have their tab, that one tab that maybe is right, maybe he's not. And they end up trying to play it just like that mm -hmm. one person. But there are so many ways to play a piece of music. Sometimes that guy's got bad tone. Some guy, that guy plays flat. There's no dynamics yeah. to that YouTube video, you know? Like, yeah, it's always, it's good to enrich yourself with as many possible interpretations and references as possible. Hmm. But at the same time, make decisions based on your knowledge and your context of the music, doing something personalized. Because yeah, that's one of the things I really love about music notation is exactly that. Like there's a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. And you can make a lot of decisions that are personal. Yeah. Like, yeah, the music of Piazzolla, for yeah. example. I mean, it's essentially just a blueprint. When you play it, you know, just straight up without any rubato, just like mechanically. Uh -huh. I mean, it doesn't even sound like Piazzolla. It sounds right. like, I mean, it sounds like a MIDI file. And But, <laughs> you know, if you really, you know, investigate, you know, how Piazzolla and, and how those tango troops played, I mean, there's just so much give and take. Yeah, and, all kinds of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Do you have some of that? 
Yeah, do I do. You play actually. some of that with Will? Yeah. So I, I a lot of my work, in addition to being a soloist, is uh, being a chamber musician, which I think is a, a world unto itself and a much larger world. I mean, the the classical guitar world is like one percent of one percent. It's, it's it's really tiny. I think something's really important for guitarists specifically is to um, you know cross pollinate and uh, and really get involved with other disciplines, other musicians as much as possible, and just cross boundaries as much as possible to, to create new new sounds, new new possibilities. And that's, I think, in some ways what I did with, with violin. And I, I met uh, William Knuth at New England Conservatory when I was doing my grad work there, and we just clicked. We had this, this uh, musical chemistry that just has been unbelievable over the last eight years. I'm just going to pause our conversation for a moment to play you a quick selection from that collaboration, which is one of Adam's favorites from Piazzolla's History of the Tango. This is the third movement, Nightclub 1960, from their album Duo Sonidos.
I don't know very many um, musicians that are that leave grad school with a musical partner who they can then you know create a career with. I actually might say that that's partly why you go to grad schools because you meet that person. You often meet that a great person to play with to collaborate yeah. with. I mean, I think a lot of people, go, yeah, go to grad school and they're looking for collaborations, but mm. they don't know it. All, it doesn't always endure. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like it's, it's transient. You know, yeah. it's you, you make one uh, one relationship and it sort of comes yeah. and goes. But yeah. one that actually endures. Year, I mean, yeah, and he's years even in New year. York now, and you're in Boston, right? Yeah, and you guys so are still he, doing that work to get mm -hmm. together and rehearse. And yeah, I mean, and that it was nice having that that foundation of like being in the same place. Actually, we were only in the same place for grad school, and then yeah. I was in Spain, and so he was traveling to Spain. Really? And, yeah. Yeah, and you guys did concerts out there. Or mm -hmm. We did. We did tours in in Spain, and we recorded our first album along the Camino de Santiago, the awesome. Spanish Pilgrimage, which was amazing. It was a very mystical experience, I think, huh. for uh, both of us. Huh. You know, being along one of the oldest pilgrimages in the world. Yeah. And recording our first album, I remember we stopped by this fountain, and. Uh, we sort of clean, <laughs> cleansed ourselves, so to speak, and washed our hands and our faces in this sort of <laughs> mystical fountain, and it's supposed to bring good fortune. And um, we actually did have pretty good fortune with the yeah. uh, the CD, so maybe it was attributed to that, or <laughs> That's you know, awesome. hopefully the music as well. But um, yeah, so I've been working with Will uh, Knuth for eight years, and it's been a, it's been unbelievable. And you know, violin and guitar is a really unique combination. You've got two instruments. It's so fun. Yeah, I mean, you, the, the the violin. We many people know it as the fiddle, guitar through rock and roll, jazz, bluegrass, whatever genre you can think of. Mm -hmm. And so you've got we got two, and then we have we we're both classically trained. Yeah. But so we're tapping into different cultural music, piazzolla, for example, which we can we can hear yeah. um, on my on our CD. Um, we play Spanish music, we play American folk music, um, just everything you can possibly think of. And then we try to bridge these these cultures. We've since we spent a lot of time touring in Spain, uh, we commissioned a lot of uh, com Spanish composers to write us works. And there's one uh, composer specifically, Jorge Muñiz, um, who has written us a piece called Funk. It's actually not on our. It's going to be on our next album. But he wrote us uh, a piece that was based on uh, American uh, funk. So it's like a mixture That's of awesome. of uh, Bootsy Collins and Jimi Hendrix. You hear the the slapping techniques and the pizzicato, the Bartok pizzicatos, and yeah. and this um, you know these these sound these sort of amplified sounds that uh, the violin's trying to mimic, and it's yeah. uh, it's it's a cool piece. So you have is it recorded? Um, I actually have a vi I have a video of it. How's the audio? Oh, great! Can yeah, you take the audio was, off it and play it. Yeah, it was recorded in uh, Jordan Hall. Nice. Yeah. In, oh, in awesome. Jordan. Yeah. Can we play that? Yeah, play absolutely. That. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think it's it's pretty cool piece. Yeah. I mean, it just it sort of taps into contemporary classical composition, but it also taps into this um, this genre, which is like dear to our hearts in America. Yeah. And I I always go back to. Um, this video that I saw of Bootsy Collins when he's talking about uh, funk music. He's just like, you've got to feel the funk. Just got to feel it. I'm like, okay. what does that mean? Like, how do you just feel the, the funk? <laughs> he's got those like star glasses on and everything. I'm like, that's amazing. I've got to try to get, uh, capture that 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 funk spirit in, in, in our interpretation. And there's like, in, in this piece, um, it there's sort of three sections there's and there's a rapping section in the center which is kind of cool and so i sort of lay down the beat and uh will raps so to speak really? <laughs> with the violin <laughs> yeah, so it's got it. this like sort of improvisational element in the center section and then it just goes crazy at the end with with um there's a, here i can, can get my guitar here yeah. you've got this uh this, this muted sound so it's like Yeah, you got this like really cool muted sound on the guitar while the violin is uh, is um, rocking out. So here's William Knuth and Adam Levin playing Funk by Jorge Muñiz. 
live at Jordan Hall at the New England Conservatory during Boston Guitar Fest in June of 2014. Thank you. 
The major contrast with that is we're, we're, we're doing like fresh transcriptions of pieces that were, were originally for, you know, maybe violin and piano. Mm -hmm. We were able to, you know, transcribe the parts for violin and guitar. We've, we've taken two major works. One of them is called Three American Pieces by Lucas Foss. It's beautiful. It's, it's super lush, Copeland-esque, uh, very mm -hmm. Americana. Um, and, and then it's got this hoedown at the end. So it's just, I mean, it just blows my mind like that it actually was able to function on these two instruments. Hmm. And then we get the European sound where we were able to uh, take this piece by Karol Szymanowski, a Polish composer, and it sort of taps into uh, Will's heritage as a, a Polish-American. We transcribed his Dawn and Wild Dance. And the second movement is like this Polish march. And it's, it's awesome. It's just, it just sounds so folkloric. You feel like you're going back a century in uh, time in Poland. And it's just, it's, it's kind of funny. I, Will might get upset with me, but he, he tried to get me into the mindset and he tried to do the march. Uh -huh. that so, so I could sort of capture that image in my mind when I was uh -huh. when I was playing that opening uh, section in, in the in the wild dance, uh -huh. and it helps. I mean, he when he was doing that march, that dance march, it it really just solidified in my mind. It was huh. actually kind of makes me laugh too. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> I wish we could see the image. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> One of my favorite things about your playing is how colorful it is. Elliot does it, yeah. Julian Bream does it yeah. all the time. I thought maybe you would want to share some of that. You know, there, there are obviously many different schools of thought yeah. on this. From my studies, you know, with, uh, with Oscar Gilia and Elliot Fisk and Ann Waller and, and, and Gabriel Sturas, there was always a huge emphasis on color and imagination and having a complete palette. Mm -hmm. I, I think of, an, of a painter's palette with all the different colors right and there there are so many different shades that you can use and how can how can you use all of those shades in your in your playing mm -hmm. and i always think that it's you you have to like push your imagination to the extreme and getting those 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 magentas and and the the bright reds or the dark colors mm -hmm. and how where are those on the instrument mm -hmm. it should well, be our, part of our technique yeah. maybe too it should I mean, be something we practice mm -hmm. i think it starts in your mind uh -huh. So you got You have to open yourself to up to this creativity, mm -hmm. and a lot of the creativity it, it spawns from like centuries and centuries of art, of history. You know, experiencing different cultures, different languages, um, different pieces of artwork. Mm -hmm. Viewing all of that, having like a full life experience. You know, like I, I couldn't live in a vacuum and and figure out these these colors on the guitar. Right. Um, they had to start somewhere, and I think it's 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 something that that begins mentally how you interpret musically what you've seen in life mm -hmm. i don't know i, I, I just so I, tell me about this when you go to play a piece and you, you are approaching it with this painter's palette mm -hmm. is it consistent no i think sometimes i i hear guys do stuff i don't hear you do it mm -hmm. but i hear a lot of guys who will randomly change colors and it makes no sense to me it has nothing to do with the music it actually often breaks a phrase in half it shouldn't be broken. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it, it's true. I, I, you have to. I mean, you can't just go willy nilly changing colors. Right. But, but where, you're kind where, of free about when you do yeah, it in the performance. Where, yeah, I always plan it all out. I mean, it's, uh, it's I, 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 I've sketched it out in, yeah. in my mind, like on, on the score, where I'm yeah. going to change colors with tasto, sul tastos, sul puntacellos, in between. Mm -hmm. It's mapped out. Uh -huh. But there's a certain amount of spontaneity right. that you're going to use. Like in the in the moment, you might you might go more tasto. 
right. or more sul ponticello, uh-huh. or s- something in the moment elicits a different feeling where you just want to uh-huh. maintain a more a benign middle of the road kind of tone or uh-huh. texture or sound timbre whatever you want to call yeah. it that makes sense yeah. so so there is there is kind of a framework in oh your i've mind definitely blueprint. Not, yeah you definitely it's not like i'm halfway through this piece and i'm getting bored and now i'm gonna change no colors. no <laughs> yeah it, it's there, there's a context for it i mean there's right. you, know, you look at what the the composer was had, has created compositionally and you try to apply that that wide color palette yeah. to it so but I, I think, I, I just, I really think you should maximize that. I always, I mean, maybe sometimes to an extreme, tell students, you want to you, you want to keep your right hand moving and, and, and exploring. I mean, it's not on a pendulum, but it's, <laughs> but it's you know, it, it's able to move and, and yeah. explore those colors and control them yeah. within that world. Um, and, I, and, I, and I found that it's, it's really challenging. It's something that you really have to actively develop over time. Mm. And has, and. And I think that's why uh, Bream and, and Fisk are are such incredible figures in the in the guitar world is because they explore that 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 rich palette that it, it isn't just one color mm-hmm. and um, I mean you can have a beautiful tone you can have and you but you should be able to have that in all in all uh, regions of yeah. of the guitar you can have it be beautiful so, and yeah. still metallic sounding so I think and it also helps to, to reinforce your own personality. Mm. Yeah, I just I I find that um, it it diversifies your perception of music. Uh-huh. I mean, if you only are exploring one color on the guitar, that's sort of a middle of the road color. You're, it's it's a barrier against all these other possibilities. Yeah, it never really ends. You you can yeah you can shade that part of the piece even more. So I, I'm a huge advocate for it, and I yeah. and I think that working with composers has also reinforced that need to explore all those different colors. Okay, so before we do move on to Adam's work with composers and his Spanish music project, I'm just really loving the Duo Sonidos album, and I want to play you one more violin and guitar piece from Adam and Will. This one is the Jota from Manuel de Falla's Siete Canciones Populares Españolas. So, seven popular Spanish songs.
When you get into the mind of a composer, it's it's a very unique experience, and it demands that you utilize every region on the guitar. Mm -hmm. it, it it absolutely necessitates it. Anything mm -hmm. less, and it, it you're not bringing the piece to its full possibilities, its full uh -huh. um, fullest potential. Right. And if they're not aware of it because you're working with mm -hmm. them and you're showing them what the mm -hmm. instrument is capable yeah. of. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I remember like the, one, the one, one of the composers that has influenced me most is the, this Cuban-Spanish composer, Eduardo Morales Caso. And he's always saying more, mas, 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 mas expresivo. Uh -huh. I mean, and, and, I, and sometimes I was like, what the hell are you talking about? What does that mean, mas expresivo? <laughs> but you, even by him like emphasizing that, by saying that, it's been ingrained mm. in me it gets your blood flowing almost to the point where you know sometimes you're either saddened or pushed to the extreme uh, anger or it produces emotions mm -hmm. you know that's uh, yeah and now I, i'm able to do that myself I, I ask that question every time i play a new piece or in any work as a matter of fact how can i express the music to its fullest potential i, I think that's also What's broadened my perspective on it is working with these composers. Each one's different. Mm. Each one has a different conception of uh, musicality, of composition, of uh, what it means to bring unity to a piece. And um, that's given me a very diverse uh, view of, of music. Let's hear about yeah. that. I want to hear about that. How did that come about in the first place? So, I mean, I think every guitarist is pretty well-versed in Spanish music. They've heard something. Whether yeah. it's Recuerdos de Alhambra by Tartaga yeah. or, or Leyenda yeah. um, by Albanis or the, the Granados um, dances um, or Defaya. In some way or form, we are connected to Spain and its music. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've been playing this music since I was a kid, since I was seven or eight. And I couldn't, now looking back, I couldn't have been further from the land of, of Spain and the Spanish sound. <laughs> than I was back then. And, and even to the point that I went to Spain, I felt very distant from it. Mm. I felt like a white boy uh, playing Spanish music. Um, yeah. And I, I, I did what I was told to. I, I, was, I was given, I was informed really well. I mean, mm. I, was, I was educated the best I possibly could. Mm. But I felt like they were puzzle pieces that I placed together almost superficially. And I needed to get to the core I need to understand the genetic makeup of those puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. And I thought the only way to do that was to go to the homeland, and that was Spain. And so in grad school, Elliot being, you know, the world-class uh, citizen <laughs> that he mm -hmm. is, you know, going to Austria and, and uh, touring all over the globe, mm -hmm. he's always encouraged, I think, all of his students to just go outside your comfort zone and mm -hmm. travel study with as many teachers as possible, get as many different perspectives as possible, and just be as much of a, citizen, a world citizen as possible, just like him, you know? Yeah, and, and, yeah uh, languages. And, yeah, and, and, yeah, just, and just explore, adventure, find all those different possibilities. I think it all comes back home. And don't be limited to uh, something that's comfortable, because yeah. comfortable gets boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to you push the limits. So anyway, he encouraged me to go abroad, so I, I applied for the Fulbright Scholarship, which is really cool um, international program that the U.S. government sponsors. It's not just music. In fact, most of it isn't music. And right. it, it takes um, not only it takes researchers, people who are interested in, in very unique things. I was humbled by some of the projects that some of my Fulbright colleagues had while they were in Spain. I mean, mm. just incredible things. My project initially was to investigate contemporary Spanish music in the 20th and 21st century that was already written for the guitar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we all know the standards, but I wanted to sort of look a little bit deeper um, beneath the skin a little bit and discover new works that were not as well known. Uh -huh. who, were the, who were the composers at the cutting edge of uh, contemporary composition? Mm -hmm. Or maybe there were works that were undiscovered by, you know, Torina or, or Granados or... So how did you go about so, adding to your knowledge base? So... My, my mentor in Spain was uh, Gabriel Estarreas, and he was uh, based out of the Royal Conservatory in Madrid. And okay. he was an amazing mentor to me. And he mm. introduced me to all the big machers in the uh, machers. It's a Yiddish term. The oh, big really? hitter, The big hitters. Okay. Yeah, all the big <laughs> machers. <laughs> Yiddish. For me. <laughs> oh, yo, yo. Yeah, all the big machers, all the big uh, hitting, uh, comp all the big hitters, big contributors in the compositional world that were still living. Yeah. And so what I wrote on my, on my proposal, 
what I intended to do then yeah. and what I did afterwards, there's like no relationship whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. I think it's mean, kind it, of expected though that you're going to, you're going to go do something. Yeah. But what you originally go out to do is not always yeah. possible to hold on to. Or. So I, I remember I, I should have just dropped down in a parachute. It would have made more sense with the whole story and everything. Cause I just sort of arrived there and I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going <laughs> to meet these people? Where yeah. are they? Where am I? <laughs> I'm gonna go grab a coffee con leche. Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe some jamón. Yeah, we're very kosher, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. So I, I think the first thing I did is I downloaded a crapload of music on iTunes, uh. and I just listened mm. to uh, contemporary music, and I attended a lot of concerts. Mm. And and the cool thing about Spain is almost all concerts are free. And I was and I was meeting people at these concerts, composers, performers, everybody who was part of the music um, uh, performing arts community. I, I was meeting. My mentor introduced me, and so I, I just started whining and dining with uh, composers one after another. And mm. if I liked their music, I wine and dine with them, and then I asked them if they would write me music. And mm. with the support of Fulbright, and and then I was able to extend my stay with Fulbright, and then with another grant called the Program for Cultural Cooperation. And then miraculously was able to extend it to a third year. And I, I, I won this grant called the Kate Neal Kinley, which was through uh, the University of Illinois. Yeah, so I was there for three years. And I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would be able to do it again. I mean, just mm. things lined up perfectly. Mm. I mean, I, that, that last uh, year when I got the Kate Neal Kinley, I mean, that was just a crapshoot. I mean, they only give one of those away. And I was competing against every other instrument. And I just, I, I remember I flew from uh from madrid to champaign urbana <laughs> in illinois in southern illinois and i i just gave it my all tried and i auditioned and awesome hall and then miraculously got a letter it's like you've been selected i was like huh. all right cool. and that meant more funding to stay in spain yeah and... so i got i got funding for a third year and mm-hmm. during that time i befriended all these composers essentially i i sort of categorized them in the end to be four generations of living composers. I was really fortunate to uh, actually get uh, a number of those composers to write for me. Leonardo Bellata, who's arguably one of the most important Spanish composers from that generation. Yeah, I want to know a little bit about that process a little bit. Do you give them constraints? Do you just say, please write me something, I'll take whatever so I can get? So with Bellata, like- I knew that um, the centennial was coming up for Albanis, so uh-huh. I was like, why don't you write a work based on, on his works? Do you specify a length? I, I said somewhere between 10 and 13 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a substantial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I asked him to write me somewhere between 10 and 13 minutes based on Albanius, and I just let him, you know, do his thing. Mm-hmm. And he, he's known for taking folkloric themes, themes from other composers. So it's kind of quotation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, but he, it's it's more than just quotation. He's not just uh-huh. like... They're, they're called abstractions. So you, okay. you you hear some of Granados and some of Albanese through the lens of, yeah. of Leonardo Bellata. So it's his uh-huh. language and you see abstractions of of these composers. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's, it's very murky. Sometimes uh-huh. it's not apparent at all. Right. But that's what makes it really interesting. And, you know, a lot of people give him flack for the fact that he's, you know, using folklore. Uh-huh. And, you know, and he said something really interesting is that if we if we don't emphasize folklore will be lost forever if we don't utilize it in contemporary life and in contemporary composition and uh, whatever contemporary facet you want then it'll get lost it'll be lost the smaller the world gets the less of that those yeah. little it gets special. left out so i yeah. mean he i think that's something he's really emphasized in his music and he's made a point to to really highlight a lot of these these themes, these mm. these folkloric elements. Yeah, and Spain yeah. has such a rich tradition of mm-hmm. folklore. It's like unbelievable. Okay, so wait. So I have a question. So you get, he just sends you this 10 to 13 minute piece, right? Uh-huh. Is that the end of the road? No, or no. Or do you look at it and you go, holy crap, this is impossible. Has he written a bunch of guitar works so, prior? He, so or? he's written works for Narcisco Yepes, oh, okay. uh, Segovia. Uh-huh. Um, he's written for you know all the greats for Williams. Unfortunately, Segovia never played his work um, because it was a little bit too avant-garde for him. Yeah. But um, he actually he wrote four Catalan melodies for Segovia. Okay. But they were they were avant-garde they're still too yeah. far. Yeah, they were they were actually the, the same ones that Yobet uh, used the Catalan mem- uh, melodies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So those, but within a ballada style of composition. So that was real. Actually, I would love to play those sometime alongside yeah. the Yobet. Yeah. So the process is they they give you the 
all the composers, they'll hand you the work. Handwritten? Uh, sometimes. Some yeah, I, 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 I pray to God they always give it to me in, in some computer, kind of yeah, computer notation. Computer notation <laughs> because reading their handwriting sometimes can be an inferno. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it can be inferno. really difficult. I'm like, with a magnifying glass, like, man, what does it say? One <laughs> <laughs> of my eyes really bad. <laughs> Oh, whippersnapper. So in this case, Bolotta? He's a modern individual. So, oh, he, so he, he, he put in the computer and, uh-huh. and a finale. And uh, he handed in. And I'll read through it. And I'll, mm. I'll, I'll, I'll finger it. I'll, I'll, um, and then I'll get, ba- I'll get together with him. And we'll work on the ter- interpretation. Mm. He tells me what he likes, what he doesn't like. And mm. uh, we arrive at something that um, both parties are happy with. But mm-hmm. So he's I, not one to probably do things that are outside of the reach of the instrument. Yeah, but you know, so there's a, there's a there's a limit to which a composer knows what's possible what's on the possible. guitar, especially if they're not guitarist, right? Which ninety nine percent of them aren't, right? Um, so I think they're open to modifications, uh-huh. and I think likewise, I am open to their input. Uh-huh. I think that's part of the humbling process. It's like you might go in there, you're like, I know exactly what he wanted, and then he's like, No, you don't know what I want, and then you're like, Oh my gosh, I just spent so many hours on this. But that's kind of that's that's kind of cool. You got to reformat your conception of a piece, you know, almost yeah. on the spot, and just have an open uh, mind about all of it. Uh-huh. I, I guess I've loved that experience. I mean, it's it's totally humbled me as yeah. a player, and it, it just it reemphasizes the role of a performer. In all of this, and the role of the composer, yes, and and really so arriving a much more active connection dialogue, yeah, yeah, and it's it's constantly transforming. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, as is the the relationship between the composer and the performer. I mean, it's 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 definitely a symbiotic relationship. Both people have a lot to, to gain. They want their their music performed. You want to uh, perform on the the concert stage, and and you want to bring something to the repertoire. Yeah, right? I mean, which is we, really nice. A lot of guitarists these days, if they're adding to the repertoire, they're adding their own compositions. That's great, but it's also nice to do this collaboration with these sort of these composers who really know their craft mm-hmm. that it, not just the instrument but they know the craft of composition I think sometimes it can be kind of limiting to know the instrument right because you're like I mean. oh you're thinking what's idiomatic but it actually might not be the best musically right when you're divorced from the instrument you have no idea or practically no idea what's actually possible because you don't yeah. play it and you just you serve the music you serve your mind and, and what it wants to put on paper and then afterwards, let the performer see what he can do to make it possible. And then you can, yeah. you can come to the, uh, the negotiating, <laughs> negotiating <laughs> table and see <laughs> what you guys can arrive at. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, I, think it's, I think it's nice to commission new works. I mean, yeah. it's, like, it's like investing in the, in the stock market. You don't know what's going to become part of the basic repertoire. Yeah, 50 years from now. Yeah, you have no idea. But it's, it's yeah. worth uh, contributing in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like... You know, you invest in a company, you don't know if it's going to IPO, but if it IPOs, boom, you're a millionaire. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not that you're going to make millions uh, with these uh, new compositions, but it's symbolic millionaires. Yeah. (laughs) I guess that's a new term. I I may not be a millionaire, but I'm a symbolic millionaire. I stand (laughs) alongside 21st century music. (laughs) When I was in Spain, I met tons of composers and it just sort of cascaded out of control and I in the end, commissioned 30 composers to write me 30 new works for uh, solo guitar. And then also the composers that I worked with and liked, I commissioned them with Will to write chamber music uh-huh. uh, pieces for violin and guitar. So well, we've I got this album, the music from Out of Time, right? Yeah, which is all contemporary Spanish music. And that has like everything I have uh, trumpet and guitar. I've got... Oh, this one's also collaborative. Yeah. So I've uh-huh. got trumping guitar. I've got duo guitar. I've got uh, guitar and string quartet. Um, solo guitar, I mean, you name it. I just, I wanted just really diverse, all kinds of stuff, a real mm. mishmash of contemporary work to just give people um, a smattering of, of what's possible in the contemporary Spanish music world. So do we have a favorite? So from the music from out of time, I, I, the, the, the ballada piece, um, the Caprichos number one uh, is fantastic. That's guitar and string quartet. Oh, fun. It's really awesome. And it's super, I mean, that I, I may be hands down one of the most difficult pieces I've ever played in my life. Really? Oh. It's like complete virtuosic stuff. I mean, it, like blew, it blew my mind and my fingers to shreds. <laughs> I was like, so like, oh my gosh, please. I actually, when I was working on it, because it was written for Elliot Fisk, mm. um, since he knew it so well and, and came up with solutions, I actually, when I was in Spain, I traveled to 
Austria to Salzburg to oh. work on it with him before I was going to record it. Huh. And I was like, Elliot, you got to give me some help here. And he, you know, he, he, he fixed me up and okay. he got me going. So, that's <laughs> so that really- one's not a new commission. That one's just contemporary yeah, music. But I, yeah, but that was the world premiere recording of it. Oh, cool. So Elliot just performed it. He hasn't recorded yeah. it yet. Okay. Yeah. And, cool. and then what about this one on 21st century Spanish guitar? So the 30 new works, I sort of want to follow in, you know, Senator Fulbright's mission in, in bringing back whatever I learned back to the United States. Right. I wanted to find a home for these, uh, these new pieces. So uh-huh. I, I, you know, I literally, I, I found emails to the biggest uh, record companies in, uh, in the world. And I, I wrote Sony, I wrote Harmony Mundi, I wrote... Everybody, and then I, find, I wrote Naxos as well, and Naxos is like, bam, uh, well, it's done. Let's, let, it. let's do it. Four CDs. Um, oh, you can, it'll be an you know encyclopedic recording project. I call it 21st century Spanish guitar because I sort of wanted to base it off of what uh, Julian Bream did with 20th century guitar music, and uh-huh. so I was sort of quoting that a little bit. I uh-huh. wanted to be sort of an extension, yeah, that's of awesome. like you know, sort of like in his. So this is the first of of four. Yeah, it's the first of four, of four and I'm I'm recording the second uh, Naxos uh, volume in November. A which great I'm re- project. I'm really excited about it. I'm, I, I don't know where, where it'll take me, or yeah. but my hope is that more guitarists play this music. They hear it. They may not like all of it, but they find exactly. that one. They find that one work, and they just they go to town on it. And yeah. you know, and you know, it, out of the thirty, if uh, a couple of them make it into the standard repertoire, hooray! Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So yeah, I, I'm excited. I and I and I've been trying to. The challenge is programming this in concerts. You can't. It's, I mean, it's pretty modern. It's not super accessible for yeah. the general. Yeah, you public. have to. It, it takes a, a sophisticated ear, but I try to trick the audience. And what I do is I, I sort of mix it up: traditional, contemporary, traditional, contemporary, traditional, contemporary. Because mm-hmm. that way, you have this. Um, you wet their palate with something that they're comfortable with, mm-hmm. and then you take all of that comfort away <laughs> and you put them in a world of uh of definitely a different world of dissonance and, yeah. and just it's an adventure i want i yeah. want to it should be part of our mission to expand the aural experience of our audiences yeah. and push them to the limit limit yeah. because if you don't then they're never going to you know that's just be more educated. of the same old crap yeah right? we are going to hear three pieces from three of Adam's albums and from three different composers. One work for solo guitar, one for guitar and voice, and the last, the capriccio Adam just mentioned for guitar and string quartet. But before we close out today's show, I just want to say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. All right. So don't forget to get your holiday gift from my website, scottwolfguitar.com store, and go check out deoromusic.com for those great ergonomic supports. So first we're going to hear a solo work by Ricardo Lorca titled Handeliana. It takes a Baroque theme by Handel from, from <laughs> his uh, opera Xerxes um, called Vagodendo, and uh, he presents it and he does uh, variations on that theme. And mm-hmm. I think it does it really w- well, I think. And it's it's one of those works that's accessible too. After you know, I start a program with some traditional music. I can sort of segue. I can bridge into contemporary music, poco a poco, a little mm-hmm. bit, of a, you know, at a time. So I don't yeah. shock the audience and be like, "Oh God, what's happening here?" <laughs> so it's it's a nice transitional piece, and it just I I think it's a great work. That one is from Adam's 21st Century Guitar CD. Then we'll hear a piece from his album Fuego de la Luna by Eduardo Morales Caso. And actually, the piece I would listen to there is his voice and guitar piece. He wrote a piece called Homenajes, Homages, pays homage to the Spanish greats, uh, Rodrigo, Monpo, and uh, Defaya. And those are fantastic. The middle one is just gorgeous. And that middle movement in particular is an homage to Federico Monpo and is with singer Lorna Windsor. Finally, Capricho number one, Los Cuatro Muleros by Leonardo Balada from his album Music from Out of Time. All right. Happy holidays and new year. Oh, and that reminds me, there won't be an All Strings Considered episode in January because my teaching schedule is going to be insane. But I'll be back in February. So until then, it's been my pleasure to introduce you to Adam Levin. Enjoy the music.